0: Welcome back to the Curious Climber podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to ultra runner Charlotte Gibbs. Now, I first actually became aware of Charlotte through listening to her on a different podcast called Seven Health that's run by Chris Sandal, where she talked about her experience with relative energy deficiency in sport. So, for those of you that don't know, I've had a personal experience with relative energy deficiency. I wrote an article about it that went on UK climbing, I'll put a link to that, so if you want to go on a deeper dive on what that is, um, feel free to read that for a bit of context. But essentially that's how Charlotte and I connected, I wrote that article, I'd already heard her voice on this podcast, and then out of the blue I get an email from her, because she's already, she started up her own podcast about Red S Recovery, so we connected, I went on her podcast, I'll put a link to that as well if you're, if you're interested, But through that, I got to know Charlotte a little bit, and I thought her story was really interesting. I also generally just find ultra running super interesting. I've done a bit of running myself, but I'm fascinated by these individuals who can go for these crazy, crazy, or at least seem crazy to me, distances. Not just the physical side, but the intense kind of mental journey that they must go on. So in this episode, we talk actually quite a lot about ultra running and the processes involved, And Charlotte's experience of getting into running and then eventually getting into ultras. But then, as you can imagine, we go on to talk about Red S, her experience, and have quite an interesting discussion around energy availability, the recovery process, and the physiological and psychological aspects that are at play in that kind of experience. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Charlotte Gibbs. Um, hi, Charlotte. Thanks for talking to me. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> no worries. So there's, there's actually loads and loads of things I would like to talk to you about. But let's start with going into a bit of background about your athletic kind of beginnings. Like, how did you first find your love for climbing, for, for, for climbing, <laughs> for running? <laughs> God, Okay. Um,
1: Well, I ran as a child in school, um, so I was always pretty kind of athletic as a kid and did loads of different sports. I played hockey. Um, My main sport actually was horse riding and I show jumped to quite a high level. I actually represented my country um, at junior level in show jumping. Um, But on the side of that, I realized that I wanted to be fit. Um, Because you have to be quite fit when you ride horses, and riding horses isn't isn't really enough to keep you fit. So I started running, um, and then I got kind of picked up by the school because they saw that I was okay at running. And I started doing the longest distance that we were allowed to do at school as girls, which was 1,500 meters. So I ran the 1,500 meters um, and the 800 meters as well, actually. Um, And those were considered distance. They were they were the distance events for us when we were when we were at school, and I was pretty good at, and went to kind of regional championships and represented my school at what we we called the inter school championships, which is a bit like the English schools for, in Ireland, um, and that was you know it was it was good it was kind of semi serious, we were coached but mm, kind of probably not very competently, and even looking back at that when I was at school there was a lot of emphasis on kind of how you looked and there were comments, often comments made, and I was always quite small. I mean I was quite quite a small child and quite slight and petite and I'm quite short as well. Um so a lot of those comments weren't directed at me. They were directed at other girls on the team. But I I know I kind of absorbed them. And I remember Mm. kind of thinking to myself, even then, even age like 14, 15, oh my god I have to be really careful about what I eat and I have to be really careful not to put on any weight Um, so I ran through school and then when I went to university I actually stopped I wasn't really good enough to be on a uni team that was quite clear I mean it was always really obvious that I was better at long distances and hadn't really been exposed to the idea that you could run on the roads in like that sounds really weird but you know this is the mid 90s and i guess road running wasn't as popular um and i knew that people did like marathons but that was just uh, unthinkable and then i didn't kind of realize that people were doing things like 5k's on the roads um and so even though i would run for fitness on my own i just it just never occurred to me that you could race then and i and then eventually coming through university i just stopped running um c- completely uh, totally stopped, probably didn't run another step until I was about twenty-eight. Um oh,
0: wow. so when I quite started a big, again. Big break
1: there. Yeah, really big break. I mean I, again, you know, I was always active and during that time I was I was still riding horses. I swapped to do dressage and got quite serious in that and competed in relatively high level in that as well. Um, and then I moved to the UK um to do my graduate studies at university and ended up staying here. And I started running again when I was, I think this is quite a typical story, in a relationship that was breaking down, needed a bit of an outlet. And I literally found a pair of Reebok trainers in my cupboard, which probably hadn't been used for nearly 10 years, put them on my feet and went out for a run. Um, wow. And, I, and then probably made, I remember it so well, I made like, I think I ran probably 800 meters down the road way too fast obviously Mm. because I had no idea (laughs) and it was just doubled over with a stitch going oh my god this is awful but part of me knew that it actually felt really good and I felt better about myself than I had for ages um so I just kept doing it and I did it I ran started running every day pretty much again not seriously it was just an outlet I had no thoughts about competing it was just mm. put on your shoes, get out, clear your heads. You know, life was pretty tough. Um, and then, and then, slowly but surely, I, you know, I think this is a really common story. Joined a running club, um, got a little bit more serious about it. Realised that I still had some of the speed from when I was younger. Remembered what it was like to do track sessions. Just started going back to mm. the track, um, and then. Then I ran a couple of half marathons, did okay, Um, finally ran my first marathon, which was actually really tough. I Mm. I found it way harder than I thought, but again, just totally hooked on it. Um, And then just kind of crept up, finally managed to crack the marathon, ran pretty decent time um, by my, my standards anyway. And then, again, just started to realize that the longer I went, the happier I felt. So moved to doing ultra distances, 50 um, k's, 50 miles. Um, yeah, wow. Into the mountains and into the trails. And it just kind of went from there. Um, so over the course of probably a decade or so. Um, and it just sort of gradually got more serious. And I think success breeds It To some extent, I'm sure you have experience of that. If you're relatively good at something and you get a bit of recognition from it, you want to do more and then you want to do more. So it and it was always it still is, I hope it was always a joy. And when I came back to running after, um, you know, when I was having this relationship breakdown, it was never for me at that point. It was never about weight management. It really wasn't.
0: Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't,
1: you know, I I wasn't overweight. I wasn't heavy. I was always quite fit because I had the horses and I was cycling around the place a lot. But there was always that little thing in the back of my mind that, oh well, a kind of a nice side effect of the running might be that it might kind of give me a better body.
0: But that right, was certainly so okay. not
1: a, a driving thing for me at all. And sure, so, but there was kind of like an awareness of it.
0: I guess it, you're saying in the background.
1: Def- was the awareness in the back of my head and I think that awareness has been was there from the time when I was a child that just sort of awareness of you know people making comments mainly to other people that you know being heavy is not good and you have to be careful and coming from a family where the women were pretty much constantly talking about their weight um, and different types of diets all the time and talking about them a lot, I think, you know, you just absorb all this information, don't you? Yeah,
0: Um, definitely.
1: But it was in two, I think, at least at the start for me in the running, they were very much on two different um, tracks. There was the running and then there was the kind of side effects of the running, which was inevitably, you know, I, I probably did lose weight. I mean, I, I never weighed myself, so I didn't know. But, yeah, you could tell, you know, the body becomes tighter and mm. your clothes, you, you get smaller sized clothes. And you, my body definitely changed. Of course, it did. Sure. And I think, it, I think I didn't become super aware of that until the running became more serious. Um, yeah. And then... So then, I think what was quite interesting for me was that I hit the point where I was actually doing quite well and I started getting invitations to some races. And this was the first time I remember this really vividly because it was the first time I think I did something which I now see is a real red flag, but also a pattern which leads a lot of runners into a state of injury, an injury cycle. So I had an invitation to come and start a race sort of from the elite start. I just ran a marathon and it was like two weeks after running the marathon. So I'd had, I'd taken like four or five days off after the marathon and I started running again and I felt fine. And then it was like the second run back. And obviously when you come off of a marathon, especially if you've done well, and I'd run a really good marathon, um, you're super fit and your body feels, unless you've picked up an injury during the marathon. Your body normally feels really good because you've got a lot of fitness, especially if you've had a few days off. And so I ended up, I, I ran a tempo run um, along the canal where I live. So flat, a flat tempo run, pretty fast. And just as I was coming to the end of the run, I started to get a pain in my foot. And I was like, hmm, OK, that doesn't feel great. But it wasn't terrible. It was just a real niggly pain in my foot. So I kind of put it to one side. And I went and went to this race. I ran through it. I kept having the pain on the foot in the foot. And I went to the race because I really wanted to start at the elite start and you know have that experience because it was the first time I'd ever been invited to do something like that. Mm. And so we started, and it was really cool. And you get your own toilets and you know your own. T- and all of that and you start feeling like you're really special which you're not but you think you are <laughs> um and off we go and I'm running along and everything feels okay and I'm about eight miles into this race and all of a sudden I mean it was literally like I'd been shot in the foot I dropped mm. the floor and basically what had happened was the ligaments had separated they'd come off the top of one of the metatarsal bones so there'd been a stress fracture in one of the metatarsals but it had basically displaced the ligaments it was a mm. horrible injury and it oh, was gosh. so painful so I hit the floor and I'm just my foot just goes black and blue almost immediately and that's that was like or thinking back that was 2016
0: and that's when it all started yeah I did want to talk a little bit about more about like running before we got into, because obviously the way we've connected is through both having an experience of Red S. And I do really want to talk about that and kind of, like you said, start from the beginning and see how, how your kind of story with that unfolds. But I wanted before that, just to go into a little bit more detail on, on the kind of the idea of ultra running, because I'm conscious that a lot of people that listen to this might be coming from a climbing background and, although a lot of climbers also run, and I think a lot of runners also climb, it would be nice to just go a little bit into, you know, like what is an ultra and how does how um, does that change your mindset around? Because I think this all feeds in as well to the Red S stuff that we'll ultimately go on to. What kind of mindset do you end up developing when you get into those kinds of distances? And I also wanted to pick up before you go on on... Um, When you first started talking about running at school, you said as girls, 1500s was your max. So it's really interesting that you had that slight limitation at school. Was it that girls weren't kind of considered able to run longer or what what was that about? Yeah, it
1: was. It was. I mean, I was at school in the early 90s and in my school, which is a really sporty school, we girls did not. The boys ran the 5,000 meters on the track mm-hmm. the girls ran 1500 meters max Wow and there was absolutely it wasn't even talked about it wasn't even a question you just there were the 5,000 just didn't exist for girls wow I don't that think seems crazy I don't though. think I don't think there was an inter-girl, inter into schools 5,000 meters for girls until I mean maybe even like the year 2000. I don't wow. know for sure but it's certainly not for my entire time at school we there was no 5000 meters
0: and the 1500 was considered distance you know Yeah gosh <laughs> so that's really um, interesting that you've ended up in the kind of realm of ultras it is
1: isn't it but it was really <laughs> clear even from when I was at school that my abilities lay in in endurance so I had no sprint and I I had no kick either so I would I was one of those milers who would run off who could run I had sort of one gear and luckily the gear was pretty high so I could put a bit of pace on it but I couldn't change that pace right (laughs) so I would either have to hope that people who went off too fast would come back to me or that I'd be able to run away from people who couldn't keep up with me but i had you know i had no hope if if it was a sit and kick race i was stuffed (laughs) it was quite funny actually um and the coaches you know we weren't it wasn't overly serious in terms of the coaching but the coaches knew vaguely what they were doing and they did try and teach me how to kick and i just i couldn't do it i had no i probably have no fast twitch fibers at all um and it was kind of interesting because obviously because the longest distance that we ran in school was 1500 meters I was surrounded pretty much by people who were essentially sprinters, really. Right. Um, and so we were very different um, in our abilities. You know, I, I was quite, quite short and, you know, my muscle, muscle development was very different, just naturally, genetically. Um, and I think as a child, being different is quite interesting because it puts you in a bit of a mindset where you're surrounded by people who have different abilities than you and you can take that one way or another. And mm. I probably did turn that a little bit around against myself and that might be one of the reasons why I stopped running um, because I was always kind of led to believe that I wasn't really that good.
0: Well, I guess um, you didn't get access to the longer races that showed you your kind of superpower, if you like, <laughs> until you no, were quite a there. but
1: also, as I said, like when I went to uni even, I just... I genuinely didn't know that road running was a thing. I mean, I knew about marathons because I had a neighbor who, uh, a man who was a marathoner. And he ran, he was like, you know, real typical 1980s running boon type. And he ran every single Dublin marathon since it started. He went every year and he ran the Dublin Marathon. He was probably like really good as well, because back then you didn't run the marathon unless you were pretty decent at it. So he was probably like a two and a half hour marathon or something, but I had no context at the time. And I just remember thinking, oh yeah, Bernard, that was his name. He's really, he's amazing. He runs the marathon every year. And he was this like tall, lanky, skinny dude in a pair of spit shorts and a singlet mm. you know that <laughs> real typical kind of thing and that was my only context for distance running and I yeah. had no idea that you know the marathon was something that that I could do and I certainly had no exposure to road races as as shorter distance road races as a thing but also because I grew up in Ireland Sonia O'Sullivan was my idol mm. so everybody wanted to be like Sonia and so I I kind of knew about you know distance running on the track but it wasn't open to us so even though we were watching Sonia on the television we couldn't do it it's quite yeah. strange isn't it yeah, that they, yeah that,
0: really
1: they're really odd things I haven't really thought back on it like in carefully but I do remember going down to the track and doing so even though the longest distance that we ran competition was the 1500 meters i remember doing mile reps on the track on my own with a stopwatch because i lived quite close to the running track and i was able to i used to be able to go and walk to the running track alone in the evening and you could just climb over the fence there was no kind of security or anything and i used to go down with an old with a stopwatch and do do mile reps and so because that was kind of the only distance i sort of knew of i knew it was like four or four laps of the track that's a mile so i can Mm. time myself
0: so and you I were already it. very
1: motivated from a, from a young age. I so. must have been, yeah. It's funny even thinking about it. And I would do that without the coach knowing. Right. So I would go down the track and do like four by a mile on my own in an evening mm. and not tell anyone that
0: I was doing this. <laughs> <it. laughs>
1: I haven't even—I haven't thought about that in years. It's funny, isn't it, the things that you think of?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about ultras, so I've done a bit of running, right, and a bit of trail running. Um, but I think, you know, I've maxed out about 12, 13 miles or something, so I've never done a marathon or anything like that. But I, I understand a lot about the enjoyment of running from what I've enjoyed and done, Um But I've I've also gone through phases of getting really quite into, like, reading. You know, I've read that Born to Run book about the Tarahumara tribe and watching the documentaries like the Barclay Marathon. And there was one I watched about, you know, uh, was it the Marathon de Sables or something in the desert? Yeah. all these ultras really fascinate me. And what fascinates me about them, I mean, the physical side is super impressive, but the mental side that really... I am kind of flabbergasted by and I was wondering if you could give a bit of insight into that like is that something you train or is that something you've just always been good at that ability to kind of that grit of keeping going because presumably it starts to hurt right you get a bit bored you're probably in and out of flow How, how is that for you I think
1: I mean I've done I've done a little bit of climbing not a huge amount but I've done enough to know what it feels like when you're climbing and it's quite a similar feeling, mm. with uh, in my experience, because when you're climbing, especially if you're if you're doing you know outdoor climbing, you, you you've been going out for and you're out for a long time, you've got that feeling of concentration. So when you're concentrating hard and you're really focusing on your handholds and what you're doing, you're you're in that flow state. But you can't keep you can't stay in that flow state indefinitely. So you do come in and out of this and that's something that i experience a lot in the long distance races and it's actually i think something that is what attracts me the most to them is because you're you know you're going to be out there for a long time and you know that no matter how awful you might feel at that particular moment in time chances are you're probably going to feel better at some point in the future and
0: mm-hmm. you do
1: and it's quite an it's very hard to explain because you do kind of slip in and out of it and I mean, I've had races where um, I felt awful at the start for whatever reason. I don't know why. I remember one race in, um, in the Lake District where I spent five hours feeling like absolute, just awful. It was I just, oh, my legs didn't feel right. And I felt sick and I had a headache. And, and then all of a sudden, after five hours, I felt great. And the next five hours, I felt absolutely brilliant and I was running along. I was so happy and I have no idea why. But I think there's something in you which once you've had that experience of flow, if you want to call it that, you, you do seek it out and you want to try and achieve it again and again. And my way of achieving it, where I get flow from, seems to be from doing these very long
0: distances and being out there for a long time. Um, I suppose that amount of time guarantees that even if you're in and out of it, you'll be in it for a certain amount of, of yeah, that experience. Yeah, I think so. Because if you weren't, you would just quit.
1: And I've never been in a situation in a race so far where I've, I've actually just gone, no, I've, I've got to stop completely. Mm. I can't, this isn't happening for me. I've always kind of come round. I mean, I've bonked um i've hit the wall like literally <laughs> hit the wall i had an experience in a race where i'd been going for about 12 hours and i only had the final descent left so i i can't remember the distance it was probably like 80 kilometers i probably had 6k left to mm-hmm. go all downhill and my legs just stopped working completely and I had to walk backwards for six kilometers down oh, this hill. Gosh. And that's hideous. You know, and you just think to yourself, I want this to be over. I, I I'm just I'm gonna faint. I'll feel sick, my legs are finished.
0: Mm. But
1: but the first kind of twelve hours were brilliant. So it kind of makes it all worth it. And then you've got the races where everything just goes perfectly. And I've only ever had probably two of those. One was a marathon and one was a fifty miler. And the 50 miler was just amazing because I was pretty much in a flow state for the entire race. Wow. And that's a long time. And, and to the point where time just disappeared. And I remember yeah. I had I had this really strange experience where I looked at my watch and realized I'd been running for three hours. And the next time I looked at my watch, I'd been running for eight hours.
0: And I had no idea where the time had gone. Wow, that's incredible. And... Do you think there's a certain amount of engineering that flow state? Like, is there a, are there certain things you do before races where you have that really amazing experience that you don't do in other situations? Are there ways to kind of like make that more likely to happen? Or is it, does it I just feel like I luck? Knew. I wish I
1: knew. Okay. I think, I think you have to be really fit. I mean, it help or it helps to be really fit definitely the fitter you are because because it's you know it's got to feel easy doesn't it so when you're climbing if you're in a flow state and every single movement just just works doesn't it and it doesn't feel like an effort
0: well I think in uh, yeah it's funny because I think sometimes it doesn't feel like an effort but I think to get into a flow state there has to be this inherent kind of challenge because otherwise you lose focus right yeah so I think it kind of has to be like hard enough to be able to immerse yourself in it and be so focused on what you're doing that you don't kind of end up just thinking about i don't know what you're going to have for dinner that night or something exactly
1: yeah no that's very true but but there's definitely a an effort a point at which the effort is as you say it's it's hard enough to pull you out of your own head but it's not so hard that you're thinking i can't keep this up this is this is too this is tough
0: yeah and, yeah
1: and in running, you you know, whatever heart rate that is for you, if you want to think about it in terms of heart rate, and you're just kind of motoring along and everything just feels okay. And especially if you're trail running, because you've got to think about technical terrain and you're thinking about where you're putting your feet, but it's yeah. very unconscious. So I think it's the part of your brain which is processing I need to put my foot here, I need to put my foot there, I need to be, you know, not fall over that boulder. And while that bit of your brain is busily doing that, the rest of your head, your brain can be very still. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
1: think that helps put you into a flow state.
0: Uh, Yeah, I have to say with my own personal running, and I'm very much a beginner runner, but I really found I experienced flow and therefore enjoyed it so much more when I went off-road. And I think part of that was being so absorbed in not falling over basically on yeah. trails. And I quite like that, you know, you feel like you're skipping around <laughs> on the path, you know, dodging things. And it's it's kind of becomes a little bit of a game. And for me that really that really opened up the experience in a way that exactly. I, I didn't get on
1: roads. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Although I, ha- I have experienced it on roads. And I think on roads it comes, it really does come from, from a very high level of fitness. Mm. Um so when you are running if you're super super fit and you're running a good marathon and you're able to just sit ever so slightly under your lactate threshold for as long as it takes and you just feel feel good um and that's that's an amazing feeling but that involves it that involves achieving a really high level of fitness which yeah. is very hard to sustain and I I probably got there maybe twice in my life Mm. Um, and that's a really special place to be, but I think that all of this is quite interesting because it's, it is, I was going to say it's an addictive feeling. I don't know if addictive is quite the right word, but it's definitely something that those of us who enjoy endurance sports of all sorts, I think we do seek it out. And it's certainly what we say, people say they miss when they when they stop doing sports or if they have an injury or whatever and i think for me anyway that that flow state if you want to call it or the meditative state that you find yourself in which i'm all i only really am able to achieve by going for quite a long time over a long distance i think searching for that has been both quite a Transformative thing for me, but also quite a damaging thing.
0: Yeah, and maybe that's a good way for us to lead into talking about your experience with relative energy deficiency. So that's actually how we first connected, um, and it started for you in into 2019, didn't it? So actually, in the last year.
1: Yeah, it did. At least in um, although, terms of a diagnosis. Yeah, in terms of a diagnosis. Although I would imagine, I think, like most of us. it's probably been going on for a long time sure um I it's interesting isn't it and you are probably you've probably had a similar experience you you start you start reflecting back on your on what's happened and how your the the way your thought patterns have brought you to a certain point and what those thought patterns have been like and when I go back to that injury that I was describing earlier in 2016 where, my, where I had that foot injury, mm. I remember really vividly my, one of my first thoughts being, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm injured. I'm going to have to start restricting my food. Oh,
0: wow. So <laughs> for that you. Was, the food was a really um, – I've kind of got written down here like, is it food or is it exercise or is it both? Because I know with obviously with ultra running – there's a high level of training I know that you're you do a quite high level of running Uh, like by level I mean like volume as well and I think with reds there's this kind of double pronged thing or potentially triple pronged thing in terms of stress on the body whether it's food intake exercise psychological stress or a bit of everything and yeah I was wondering with you how much each one played a part
1: I think they all play a part and and I think for everybody they do I having done a little bit of research on this, I don't think it's possible to have reds to the extent that most people have it. I mean, I know that some people put themselves into a situation of energy deficiency without realizing it. But I don't think that that's the same thing as actual reds. I do think they're two quite different things. So I know that the experts talk about conscious and unconscious reds mm-hmm. and that people who are in a state of unconscious where they just don't realize they've put themselves in an energy deficient state they might have some symptoms but it's pretty easy to turn it around because they don't have the psychological drivers behind them sure. and the psychological drivers are the things that push us to overtrain and or underfuel, and normally mm-hmm. both and they normally yeah. do go together um and it's a really complicated psychological nexus Um, And I don't think it's possible to really separate out one thing from another because they do all come together. Um, And for me, it was an evolution of patterns of thought, which probably go back to childhood around eating and how much you should eat and what's the right things to eat and then getting a little bit obsessed about Um, improving performance through diet so I got very interested in nutrition and as I started becoming a better runner I started doing more research into um, you know what what were the right things that I should eat especially as an ultra runner and I think those of us who are drawn to these extreme sports we tend to be the type of people who want to learn more and are interested in doing research so we can be quite we can be quite easily led in a weird Mm. way because we we do we want to improve ourselves, and we might have minds and educations which which uh, teach us how to evaluate evidence, but we're being exposed to things, particularly online, where which are very difficult to kind of get a get a hold on. And if your mind is inclined to grasp hold of certain ideas around, food and restriction and there's some there's some really interesting theories about the the anorexic mind and people who might be more genetically predisposed to eating disorders and Mm. that there's something in the brain which actually wants to grab hold of of excuses Mm. or reasons why you should change your eating or manipulate your eating Um, I think there's something in that I really do and for me it was it started off as I wanted to improve my running. Um, I wanted to improve my energy and my stamina. Uh, and I started reading up on the ways that it might be good to do that. And it wasn't initially about losing weight. It it was about improving my running and not through losing weight, actually. I, rem- I don't think initially I thought to myself, if I dropped X number of kilos, I will be a quicker runner. It was more if I manipulate my diet in this way, I might be a better runner. Right. And of course, there's all this stuff online about you know becoming fat adapted and cutting down your carbohydrates, and I just went straight down that rabbit hole and cut carbs, and as a result of that, cut the kind of ma- the the number of calories I was eating overall. Carbohydrate um, availability was really really low and it really messed with my body and with my brain in 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 a way which I'm only now realizing yeah um, because it does have we we all know the kind of physical issues around it but the psychological issues are really strong and I think the psychological issues actually come as a result of the restriction as well as prior to the restriction so for me Absolutely. Um,
0: I've sorry to interrupt you, but you you made a really interesting point there about the psychological mm-hmm. changes and when they come. And I've also done some kind of research around like weight restoration when people end up. And most of the stuff I've read has actually been more to do with kind of isolated anorexia not necessarily in sport, but about how weight restoration is super important in terms of um, brain changes. Mm absolutely no
1: i think that's so true that without the nutrition required your brain can't heal itself and restriction or energy deficiency if you prefer to look at it through that model which i, I think is more useful for us it definitely causes changes in your brain which then calls you to reach for more restriction um so whatever the the biological model is behind that i think it's very very true and for me i know that the more i was restricting particularly the carbohydrate restriction that i was doing the more my brain was telling me to and the worse my psychological symptoms got so Mm -hmm. to the point where i i was and i I was looking back on a, a diary i was keeping um when i probably my reds was at its very worst now, what was interesting about this is that it was at a time when my running was at its best. Mm-hmm. So I was running extremely well. i just won a big race. I'd won, um, I won a 50-miler. I came second overall. It was a huge thing for me. And I remember looking back at my diary, and the diary entries were really sad because it was all about eating what I should eat, what I shouldn't eat, beating myself up about having had a coffee with almond milk because I should have had oh, a gosh. espresso and you know i and i was i remember walking home just dreaming all i wanted was cashews i wanted to eat cashews but i couldn't allow myself to eat the cashews i just couldn't and wow. I was just f- hallucinating almost about eating these damned cashew nuts um i would i I was just in this state where i I would allow myself x amount of food and no more, and it was really, really bad and i would get I got to the point where I was doing these incredible runs because I was so fit at the time. Um, running huge mileage. And so I would go out and I would do sort of 12, 15 miles over some pretty tough terrain. And I'd come out to the car and I always had these really good intentions. So in the car waiting for me. So I would have driven I would have driven out for a few hours to get to the, a mountain or or a, a better terrain to run on. So I knew I would have a few hour drive back. And in the car after my run, I'd have like a protein shake or a recovery drink or, or something mm. like that. And I'd come back after my run and get into the car and I'd look at the drink and go, no, no, I can't have that. I, I haven't I haven't justified the calories. I'd rather save those calories. And, oh, I just wouldn't have, and I just wouldn't drink it. I wouldn't have it. Yeah. And I would yeah. do that so many times. So I'd have the good intention of having it, having it made up in advance. But when it came to actually drinking it, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't. And yeah. it got, that was, that was a real pattern for me when I, and that's, that was at the point when finally I did lose my period completely Um, and then that's when the red s really really set
0: in for me big time yeah one of the interesting things I think about your story or at least what I know of your story is that losing your periods wasn't the first sign that you got and I think often with women in a red s situation we're very kind of focused on periods it's very much you lose your period, okay, you're, you're in this kind of dysfunctional state, and maybe when you recovered, that's when you get your period back. But I'm very conscious that for you, it, it wasn't that way round.
1: No, and that is an interesting one. I mean, I'd had, I'd had issues around my period, definitely, where it had come and, and gone, and I always would, if after a hard race, I would always miss at least one sometimes two periods oh really oh that's interesting um so that was really really clear to me so if I ran if I ran a big race like a long ultra or a hard marathon I would mm. almost expect then not to get the next period right. um and that was quite that was an interesting kind of cycle for me that went on for a good few years uh, but then yeah my period kind of hung around <laughs> for for quite a while um definitely getting lighter and lighter and a little bit sporadic and then eventually it just kind of dwindled off but I'd already had stress fractures before the period went so yeah. I was definitely in a state of you know of red s what we would call red s mm. probably a year if not more before
0: I actually fully lost my period I think that's um, really important because I think a lot really of people listening really to this are maybe thinking, well, I've got my period, so I'm good, basically.
1: Exactly, and, and and it's not the case. And even, I mean, I know that a lot of GPs are still very ignorant about this, but I did speak to my GP about having had a few kind of missed periods around races. And, and as usual, you know, their attitude is all well. You're a runner, kind of what do you expect? Shrugged shoulders, not really particularly interested. And when I first presented with the stress fractures, there was no questioning about my menstrual status at that point at all. They never asked me. And there was always just this assumption that, oh, as runners, you probably can expect to have your periods be a bit weird or not really to get periods. But the, The connection to me, I was never really, I knew, so I knew myself that losing my period was a bad thing. (laughs) Right. So I used the fact that I was still getting my period as a way of justifying what I was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I must be fine. I still get a period, even though really I knew that there was a problem. Yeah. So I think people should be really careful that you know just because you're still getting your period, for a lot of people, the period often is the last thing to go rather than the first thing to go, which it is for some people. But for people like me, I think the period, the loss of the period, I was getting hormonal symptoms, whilst, which I now realize were hormonal symptoms, while still having my period. Okay um, like like what kind of symptoms? So the things that I remember the, were the most oh, the night sweats. Okay. Oh my, my word. I would wake up at night absolutely ringing with sweat to the point where you know I would sweat through t-shirts um the bed sheets would have to be changed. It was just vile and and the leg pains and cramps at night as well were pretty severe and some of the that is probably down to the fact that I was permanently injured um or fighting injuries or running through injuries um but definitely a lot of that was hormonal as well and the night sweats were definitely hormonal and that goes hand in hand with being freezing cold all the time as well so because it's freezing but you're also sweating at the same wow. time it's awful it really really was extreme it was Mm. hideous and again it's like because when you're going through things you just assume that this this is this is relatively normal and it's only now that I'm better at least to some degree better I don't get night sweats anymore I'm not freezing all the time Mm. I look back and think oh my god
0: Mm. (laughs) how did I live like that but I think sometimes you know we we normalize these things, or these things can be normalized if you're if it happens gradually um, over a period of time. Mm. But like you said, the first kind of I guess the first thing that was a bit of a, a shock to you that made you really look at things was getting repeat repeated stress fractures. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was terribly unlucky. So I I'd had because I got um, I got a little bit of recognition. So I. I got put on um, a a program which sent me for physiological testing. So I got sent down to, to Loughborough, up to Loughborough University for some physiological testing. And this was back in 2016, I think. So, you know, we did a VO2 max test and various other things. But we also did a DEXA scan, which is right. quite interesting. So I had normal bone density in 2016 when I was scanned
0: Oh right. And they did
1: loads of other tests and you know VO, VO2 max testing, lactate testing, blah blah blah, all that. And I was I came back from those tests super they, Everything looked really good. They were really pleased. My bone health was good, body composition was good. I remember they flagged that they thought my body fat percentage was a bit low because I was in an off season and I was at 12%. But it was really interesting looking back at this now knowing what I know now if an athlete presents to you with 12% um uh, uh body fat percentage in an off season you probably flag that as that's that's low you know that's a bit of a red flag especially yeah. for a woman i was they were just i was never really taught it was all very oh you're so lean isn't that wonderful kind of thing but then again all the other markers looked good so there well, was no yeah. reason why they would be particularly concerned. You know, they they were they did hormonal panels. Everything looked okay. Um, so I was kind of told to to crack on. You know, you're obviously doing something good here. Crack on with mm. it. And looking back on it, actually, that that testing was probably the worst thing that could have happened to me because I took that as a green light. I'm doing brilliant.
0: Yeah. Go me. <laughs> yeah, I mean. You could argue that it could be a green light to go, well, carry on with what you're doing now rather than, because presumably your behaviors then were different in the next couple of years. No, they, uh, I think what
1: happened was because I'd got this kind of almost, it was, it was literally a printout um, telling me how, you know, fantastic my body was Mm. (laughs) at that particular point in time. It was like then the pressure is on to, you've got to sustain that. So you got to sustain that low body fat percentage you got to and, and that became a little bit of an obsession for me definitely um and thinking back on it that actually was a, i think that was a driver for some of the disordered practices because then you start you start chasing it you think well i was considered to be you know really good i was really fit my lactate was super my vo2 max was really high at this particular point in time when my body was like this so i've got mm-hmm. a keep it like this. Right. Okay. Um, And that was quite dangerous. And I didn't get very much guidance at all on that because I think all my markers were quite good. Um, I was kind of sent away being told, well, you're obviously, you obviously know what you're doing. You know, your coaching looks okay. You're probably in a good place. Keep, keep going.
0: When Mm -hmm. actually
1: what happened to me at that point was I mentally took on board messages that, turned out to probably be quite harmful to me and again this is all in hindsight you know of course yeah but since then so after that I started getting stress fractures I got I mean I had a metatarsal stress fracture that I described then I had two tibial stress fractures another tibial stress fracture one in my femur and and a torn meniscus in my knee oh and a plateau stress fracture in the top of the tibia as well um, There're probably more oh and two torn achilles which probably were connected actually to the to the tibial stress fractures because the the soleus gets so tight that the, the, the achilles couldn't really handle that and it was and each one of those injuries were treated in isolation yeah um, until finally 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 I got really lucky. Because where I live in Oxford, um, we have we just happen to have a superb NHS um, sports medicine clinic attached to our hospital here. And I finally, the GP sent me to them. And since then, I've been under them and it's called the Oxford Clinic based at the Nuffield Orthopaedic Centre um, in Oxford. And they've been looking after me Um I'm a bit of a frequent flyer. I've had more MRIs, I think, than any of their other patients, which is a little wow. bit embarrassing. Um, but they have been excellent. And I know that they're they're very limited in what they can do, so they can't offer me any nutritional support because that's not under their remit, which is something I know that they're working on. Mm. But the doctors who are working in that clinic are incredibly well-informed, and they do know about red S and they have been, as much as they can, giving me guidance and it's been it has helped and even though they're not themselves nutritionists we have gone through nutritional rehabilitation and I think that it's been relatively successful I'm still working on it but I've Mm -hmm. definitely improved and okay while I don't know if my bone density has improved because it can take a few years before that happens um and I have had recent stress fractures, unfortunately, I do feel much better. And the symptoms around like the night sweats and that I was talking about and the freezing cold and a lot of the mental symptoms as well have dissipated. So I think it's important that people realize, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's Mm. not always easy and it's not always linear, but is definitely hope that you can come round from um, from these things
0: what do the main changes look like for you in terms of recovery like what what are the fundamental things that you've changed for, for me what made the difference so i
1: think i mean i was definitely overtraining and underfueling Right. So, and I think I was doing both almost separately from each other. So even if I'd been fueling sufficiently, I was probably still overtraining anyway. Um, and that, so I had to get a grip of my training, um, which I think that, you know, that needed to be done regardless. And I was able to do that. Um, the The nutritional side of things was much harder because that's so, so much more psychological Um, But one of the things that really helped me was to calculate my actual um, energy availability. So Mm. because I was struggling with thinking about things in terms of, you know, number of calories to eat over the course of a day. Because it just didn't make, I I couldn't kind of understand it. It was freaking me out. It just all seemed too much. I couldn't, you know, begin to get my head around eating, you know, 3000 calories a day or whatever it was going to be but when I actually saw it broken down in terms of energy availability and I had a number which showed me how low my energy availability was that's what shocked me actually it was that that went ah okay because if you told me oh you need to eat x number of calories per day and you're only eating y my brain would be like well well who says why are you saying that what's your evidence for that but for some reason the energy availability calculation worked and that got through to me and that shocked
0: me Um, so for people listening i guess we should slightly define so energy availability is the amount of energy that you have left over when you've already accounted for exercise so you've accounted for calories in to fuel your run or your climb or whatever that is it's the energy left over for basic bodily functions that include things like bone turnover metabolic rate menstrual function producing hormones all those kinds of things so it's the energy that your system has for that basic stuff and there's a calculation which is kind of 45 calories per kilo per kilogram of fat-free mass so it's a bit of a tricky one to work out but that's what charlotte's talking about she can kind of go back to the numbers and go okay this is what i need to be taking in in order for my body to have enough energy to do its its background basic caretaking
1: exactly that's no that's a really good way of putting it and you can you can estimate it i mean i was lucky enough that i i had the physiological testing done so i knew my fat-free mass and i had a pretty accurate number Mm -hmm. Um, but you can you can you can estimate it and for most people if you're lower than around 30 kilocalories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day you're gonna be in trouble and i was calculating that for me a good day was putting me at about 18 Right. And that was that was like me putting a really optimistic spin on it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean in reality it was it was low. It was much it was lower than that. Um and that's what opened my eyes. That's what really, really opened my eyes. And the other thing that helped me a lot was with the doctor the doctor who initially diagnosed me sat me down and said, I want you to try and hit two grams per kilogram of body weight of protein a day Mm. which is a lot of protein yeah and I thought to myself I can't eat that much that's crazy but I kind of forced it and I really really forced and and just I mean I don't know whether the eating of the fact that it was protein or not but it was just the fact that I I had to eat that many extra calories in order to get that much protein in and Mm. that kind of just flipped me through that mindset and so anytime I did any form of exercise I would make sure I would eat something afterwards normally something relatively high in protein I would prioritize protein in my meals I would I stopped skipping meals I just was I was the worst meal skipper in the world you know I was one of those people where if I'd if lunch was supposed to be at one and I missed my lunch window because I was, you know, in a meeting or something and it was like quarter past one. It would be like, oh, no, no, lunch window closed. No lunch for me sort of thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I really got a hold of that. And I mean, I, I can't lie. And, and you know, it would be very easy to pretend that it's been plain sailing and it really hasn't. I mean, there have been plenty of times where I've wanted to go back into those habits because they feel more comfortable Or I've wanted to do that thing which I used to do, which was to deliberately schedule my runs so that I would run over a meal time, which would mean Mm -hmm. that I would miss that meal. I was was so bad. I would would deliberately arrange to go for a run at, say, 7 p.m., knowing that dinner time was around that and knowing that by the time I'd come back from my run and had a shower, it would be too late to have dinner because I didn't want to go to bed
0: on a full stomach. I would always do things like that. Yeah it's really interesting to listen to you talking about the psychology because I know that you know the science as well I know that you know about fueling your training and that actually when you think about it rationally your performance will only be better if it's fueled better but it's really the kind of um I guess the eating disorder mindset that's coming in here and and telling you to do something else
1: Oh totally the the cognitive dissonance is so strong and this is something that Everybody I've spoken to about this agrees with me. We all know rationally what we should be doing on paper. But actually applying that is really, really difficult. And you always come up with reasons why you shouldn't apply it to yourself. Or why maybe in this particular case, it's not applicable to you. Or maybe it would be better to not eat that meal. just and your brain just comes up with all these reasons why you you think that, you know, you probably shouldn't do the thing that you know you should do. Um and it's it's um I think it's a symptom actually. The more you restrict, the more you come up with reasons why you should restrict. Um yeah. and you and it's the same actually with the over exercising. So one of the things that I've been really struggling with more so than actually with the with the food side of things has been not not exercising when I shouldn't so my my kind of default was always if it hurts run on it anyway (laughs) and I've really struggled with that I have to admit because the brain just goes you've got to run or you've got to move or you've got to walk and if you don't You know, you're you're lazy, you're bad, you're fat, Mm -hmm. whatever the brain wants to say. And so I've always come up with these reasons why I should do things, even though. And to the point where I would know that I had, say, a stress fracture brewing. And I would know that if I did the run, it would be worse. But I genuinely would not care because The run was all that was important to me. And I would do the run and it would hurt. And then I would finish and I'd be like, I don't care. I've done the run. That makes me happy now. And the next day I couldn't walk. Mm. And and that's still something I struggle with. It's it's a real, real pattern of behavior. It's incredibly hard to come out of. And it's Mm. not an easy thing to talk about. Oddly for me, I find it easier to talk about the food um, right, oh, which a lot of people don't, but I do. I, I find it much easier to talk about my food struggles, but talking about the struggles around stopping exercise for me is really, really hard because I have failed to do that. Um, and I think it's really important to be open about these things because it's a part of everybody's recovery. Um, for me, I should probably have stopped my exercise train my training I should have stopped trying to cross train uh, right a lot and I was probably ill advised because I was advised from a point of view of somebody who isn't obsessive or compulsive mm-hmm. about their exercise mm-hmm. so uh, when I was told oh you can cross train of course what they didn't mean was you can do four hours on the elliptical
0: tomorrow (laughs) so for context so people listening know you've been carrying on with some training and exercise and running during your recovery Um, and there's kind of two schools of thought on this I mean from my personal experience I've eventually stopped climbing and running in order to recover but I know that there are obviously you and I know other people that are kind of ongoing with their sport and just managing the intensity whilst recovering What are your thoughts on that? Is it something that you feel like, oh, if I could mentally get there, it might be physiologically better to stop, or do, or are you kind of like, no, I can, I can manage the volume and the intensity, and the recovery will come fine? Honestly, I think that I should have stopped,
1: and I would probably advise people to stop if they can. Um, I don't think it's, I don't think you know, it's the same for everybody, Um, but. I think that if you are, like me, very much um, obsessive about your exercise patterns, it's probably healthier to try to get to the point where you can stop. And that's really hard. And I, as I say, I failed. I failed to do that. And it's definitely put back my recovery so I've been relatively positive in this conversation so far about my recovery. And I've definitely come a long way. But that last, for me, the last step probably should have been and could probably still will end up being a full, complete rest. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how long that will need to be for. Um, hopefully not for you know, a huge amount of time because I... I feel like my recovery has come a long way. And, you know, hormonally, um, a lot of physiologically, um, a lot of physiological signs show that I am recovered. But for me, I'm still, my bone density is obviously still not great because I'm still at risk of stress fractures. And Mm -hmm. that's probably because instead of giving my body that total rest in order to allow the bone turnover to happen... I cross-trained, cycled, swam, and I wouldn't. And, and, and what makes it so hard is that all of that was under the guidance of the doctors. They didn't realize how much of it, it was, I was doing, and they didn't realize the psychological driver behind
0: it—that
1: yeah. I was doing it because I couldn't not do it.
0: And I think sometimes when you end up with a medical diagnosis, it's very easy to outsource decisions and go, right, well, what do I? What should I do? Ask the expert and then do what they say. And I, although I do obviously think that's very important, I also think that there's a gut feeling that we have about our bodies and there's a gut feeling we have, I would say, across the board in decisions, you know, completely different decisions I've made in my life. Often before I've got to that cognitive place where I've made the decision, I've had a gut feeling about it for a while. And I think those kinds of messages are really important to trust. For me personally, in my recovery, I wasn't told to stop exercising by the doctor and dietitian that I saw. Um, They were very much like, you need to manage the volume, you need to manage the intensity, so no high-intensity exercise, but they were very wary of taking away a coping mechanism for me and not wanting to put me in a more vulnerable state. And I tried to keep climbing and keep running, but manage that intensity whilst eating more for a while. And I eventually just kind of hit a wall with it and I just stopped. But I think if someone had told me I had to stop, I would have found that hard. Like, I had to get there on my own. And I think for a long time in those first couple of months of recovery, I kind of knew that was where it was going to end up. I just wasn't psychologically ready yet. And by the time I was ready, it didn't feel as hard because it was just so obvious to me that it was what I needed. So it was easier in a way. And not to say it was easy. It it was far from easy. But I was mentally and physically quite exhausted by the whole thing. And I just couldn't see another way around.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, no, I, I, I think you make a really, really good point there actually. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to advise athletes unless you know, unless it's critical, unless their health is at such a critical state that there there is no choice. I think mm-hmm. the, the psychological um, advantage of being able to continue, their sport to some degree is really important if it's possible to do. My problem, I think, for me in the care that I was getting was that there was a lack of understanding that around the kind of role that exercise was playing in my psychological rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, being told you should cross-train was... And interp- I interpreted that as I must cross-train.
0: Right. But I um, guess there's also a subtle difference in whether, well, not so subtle, I guess, in whether you have bone density problems as well. Because if you have osteopenia, am I right in saying it would be wise to keep some kind of loading exercise in?
1: Yeah, I think there is quite a bit of evidence that if you have osteopenia, um, particularly weight training is, is vital. Mm. And I think, I mean, I, I think personally that if you have a diagnosis of ospenia and particularly if you come from a background um, from a non-weight-bearing sport like cycling, it's it's so important. You've got to build, to do something to stimulate the bone turnover and yeah. and weight, weight training is probably the most important. And I love weight training and it's actually something that I've really started doing quite seriously recently and it gives me so much pleasure. And I wish that I'd been able to just do that. And I think that if I had just concentrated on building my strength through weight training and had not done the cross training that I did, I probably would be in such a better position now Mm. um, a year down the line. unfortunately, I stuck to the whole... What I knew as an endurance athlete, I thought I knew how to rehabilitate myself. And the narrative is always you cross-train, you go on the bike, you swim, you pool run, um, you use the Alter-G treadmill, you want to keep your cardiovascular fitness up as much as possible, not to lose as much as much as you can. But what I think I didn't realize and what I realize now was that actually by going on the elliptical machine and going on my bike all the time, all I was doing was taking more energy away from the healing that my bones needed.
0: Yeah, and, and in terms of recovery, it's harder, I think, if you're exercising to make sure that you're not dipping into low energy availability at different points in the day. Whereas one thing I've realized by stopping exercising is so long as I eat regularly, I kind of know that my, I'm not, with that within day energy energy, Um, availability is is a bit more stable basically because I'm not having these huge deficits that I can't calculate very well like Mm. if I go for a run I'm not sure exactly how much I've burned so it's it's easier for me this way to make sure I'm not dipping too low at any point yeah no
1: that makes complete sense and there's a lot of evidence to show that um, having consistent energy availability throughout the day is is really important so even, so even if you are, even if you're ending the day in a state of um, good energy availability, if you have big dips during that day,
0: that can be just as damaging to your body. Yeah, there was, that, the there was that Swedish study, wasn't there, where they had two groups of athletes and they had the same amount of calories in a day, but some were kind of steady state during the day, kind of eating more regularly and not. Um, so it was like they were looking at the number of hours that you had low energy availability, energy availability during the day, and the greater number of hours, even with the same overall calories, was dictating more menstrual dysfunction. Which no, is, that right. kind of blew my mind. That study—it's <laughs> yeah, a terrifying
1: study and really important. I mean, I know it's only one study, although I think there've been a few others which have backed it up, but there haven't been as as. Um, consistent in terms of the results Um, but I think that if that study is correct as it probably is that the trend that a lot of people were following towards like intermittent fasting is unbelievably dangerous for athletes.
0: Mm. Um, I think one of the problems we come across is that a lot of public health messages nowadays are just not appropriate for the demographic of athletic people No, and that's one of the things that's so damaging for,
1: and I know that that affected me. And I, it's almost embarrassing because I'm an educated person. Um, I should know better, but I absorbed all this information and it's almost like it seeped through my skin. (laughs) Mm. And all of a sudden I found myself applying things from that I read online about nutrition um, which are based on people who are obese and need to need to lose serious amounts of weight or sedentary. And I start assuming that they apply to me or assuming they apply to everybody. And mm-hmm. that's so dangerous. And it really does make me cringe when I read things online, um, as, as you see all the time with people talking about various fatty diets or restriction or intermittent fasting or fasting or whatever they're doing Mm -hmm. and these are athletic people and they're being led down this dangerous dangerous route and being praised for it and that's the worst thing that there is it's that sort of cultural praise of around discipline or um being careful about what you eat and the shame around eating large quantities i mean that's one of the big things for me actually was as an athlete obviously you've got to eat quite a lot of food and i used to get quite often you know people would make comments to me about oh you know you you eat so much my mother was the worst for us oh you're eating all that food and i found that really really hard to deal with i think because already my brain was primed to be you know super conscious
0: um, mm. and so
1: hearing these comments even though I, I knew in you know I would think to myself I just ran 20 miles gosh I yes. need this food the fact that the comments were being made would be enough to make me go oh, no I won't, I won't I won't have that then or to make me feel ashamed um, mm. and I think there's actually quite a lot of that particularly around women and yeah it just comes from a point of position of ignorance where Somebody who's never run more than, you know, 100 meters to the bus has no idea what it feels like to fuel a long run. And it's actually
0: quite hard to get enough in because the exercise can often limit your appetite, meaning that you you kind of actually don't want as much food as maybe maybe your body needs. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that I found was I got quite, I would get quite
1: kind of, I would think one of these patterns of thoughts would be, why am I hungry? So I would like question my body all the time. So I think to myself, you're I almost kind of having this conversation with the body. You just had breakfast five hours ago. Why are you hungry now? As though the body was being so unreasonable. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would have these like weird conversations with myself quite, quite often about things like that. Or, you just had a portion of food. Why do you feel like you want another portion of food, you greedy body? Um, Gosh, making yeah. making these judgments constantly, which and I think a lot of that comes from being taught culturally to 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 misinterpret or to 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 be afraid of our hunger cues or to squelch them down and pretend. Or that, that somehow
0: we we know better. Mm. Mm, definitely. One of the one of the dialogues that i've come across in climbing since since um you know i wrote an article about red s it's been talked about a little bit more in in recent months and there's a few other athletes that have obviously spoken out about it one of the dialogues i've seen in climbing is and i've got my own opinions about this but i'm interested in yours is this idea that it's not actually any different from anorexia that it's a kind of relative energy deficiency in sport is almost like a glorified version of anorexia that athletes can use to make them feel better about the diagnosis so we don't have to almost admit to having an eating disorder um
1: i think anorexia is probably the wrong word for it but i think that red s is at heart an eating disorder actually Mm -hmm. i do um or a well it's exactly as it sounds it's an energy disorder so whether the primary driver of that is restriction of calories or overburning of calories through exercise compulsion or overtraining for whatever reason that may be the psychological drivers for that are probably quite similar in a lot of ways to people who have an eating disorder without the the sports side of things mm. however i don't think it i think the problem is that those of us who have come to this from sport, we don't want it to be labeled an eating disorder because we, for us, the primary thing about our experience has been our sport. Mm. But I actually don't think it's, I think that the sport is probably secondary. And I do think that, those of us who have put our bodies into a state of red S have, yeah, an eating disorder. And there, I, I I, don't think there's any point in beating around the bush about that. If it makes people uncomfortable, then I think they're uncomfortable about it for different reasons. Sure. Um, I think just because it comes through sport doesn't make it not an eating disorder. And that doesn't mean it, you should be embarrassed about calling it that. No. Yeah. Um,
0: I you probably maybe you it sounds like you disagree with me well no not not 100% I kind of I agree with a lot of what you're saying I guess my answer to that discussion is that it's more complex than that because yes there are definitely I mean again I can only really talk from my perspective because I don't know what everyone else's experience of of red s is for me personally there was for sure an element of disordered eating but I don't for example I mean again maybe this is me getting a bit too factual about it but I went up and I I looked up the kind of diagnostic criteria for, for anorexia for that that kind of eating disorder and I personally don't fit those criteria but there are elements of me that fit that criteria but then the overtraining side of it has been quite a heavy part of it for me like just doing too much all the time doing a full, you know, lots of training or climbing, but then also running on the side. So it, I feel like the major deficit for me was created more on the exercise side of things, but, yeah. but then there was for sure some food restriction and some disordered habits around food. But I feel like it's the combination that makes the poison. But I mean, you're right, maybe if I took the exercise out of it, the the food side would have been would, would have been bigger. I don't really know in that parallel existence um so it's It's not that that i I disagree it's more that i think it's a, a bit more complex than just saying this is the same as this no it's not it's
1: obviously yeah i agree it's not the same but when you think if you're looking at the diagnostic criteria for anorexia yeah definitely it's not anorexia but there are lots of there's a spectrum of eating disorders um and over the years the the acknowledgement of eating disorders beyond just anorexia bulimia and bulimia mm. have has has increased and there is now I think um, in the DSM and um, a diagnosis of atypical anorexia um, which is which has the characteristics of anorexia without necessitating a very low body weight or very low BMI um, right and I think that people with red ass probably f- or closer to that um, or to like a kind of an orthorexia yeah. style. Um, but definitely for us, I think the the exercise side of things, the sport, um, and then the compulsion around our sport is probably a, almost a bigger driver for, for nearly all of us. And that's really not very well understood. And that's a shame because I think that in a culture where extreme sports are becoming more and more popular Um, we need to look really closely at what drives people to do them and Mm. I say that as somebody who has come to realize that the culture in ultra running which is a sport that I've come from while in lots of ways it's a glorious community of fantastic interesting fun welcoming people and it really is there's also a seriously dark side and the compulsion and over training and burnout and the damage that it can do to people is immense. And you do see it. And there's a really, really strong culture, particularly you see like on Instagram now, and there's some pro yeah. runners who, who kind of depict this very clearly the constant racing and mm constant racing through injury as well where you get these these instagram posts where somebody's been injured and then two weeks later they're winning a race somewhere and you just sort of think how is this possible what are you doing and this goes on and on and on and on until then the person disappears completely and the sport has just seems to it absorbs people in this way mm. and then it eats them up and spits them out and we don't see the damage we don't see the other side you know we don't see the broken bodies and the burnt out burnt out minds we see the beautiful mountains and the photos on instagram of people running mm. on these amazing trails i wish people would be more open to talking about the dark side of things and what actually is driving them to run these distances and do the things that they do because while we can talk all we want about the glory of flow and how wonderful the good races feel. And we can joke as we all do about, you know, the epic bonks and the vomiting and the black toenails and the blisters. And it's all part that's all part of the sport. But we need to also talk about why, for example, you're going out the door to do your training run when you know that your leg hurts really badly and you feel sick. Why yeah. do you feel like you need to do that run, and then putting the picture on Instagram about it, mm-hmm. and that whole culture of getting it done and fighting through—you know—there's a lot of heroics around that,
0: but we're not openly talking about the damage that it can cause. Yeah. Oh gosh, I see so many parallels in climbing to what you've just described. There's a lot of kind of pushing through, you know, at inherent in climbing across the disciplines, is kind of uh, managing discomfort and pain. You know, our our skin gets cut and sore. You're cold a lot of the time. And, you know, there's a certain amount of, like you say um heroics in it of of being kind of tough and gritty and determined and i've completely kind of fallen into that as well but i think a thing is it's it's not always negative is it you can have these really like positive experiences where you push through and and it's fine and probably physiologically it's fine but then if you get into that habit of always always pushing then inevitably you know your physiology is going to suffer from it but i don't know personally i found this disconnect between what my brain thought I, my body could handle and what my body could actually handle. Like I stopped listening a while ago. I'm not really sure when, <laughs> probably like you, have been trying to pinpoint exactly where things started to go wrong. Mm. But when the brain takes over for too long and you get into this inner culture um, of kind of just go, 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 push regardless, it, it almost becomes like this kind of, I thought it was like a strength of mine, you know, tenacity. Um, and I, in the future, certainly, and I'm kind of interested to know how you see this with your running, have to be able to modulate that a bit better. When I go back to climbing, I need to find a middle ground um, that I can still enjoy my sport and still hopefully perform well in my sport without always going to that place.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 think you're right. And sadly, I think once you put, once you have pushed your body to the point of dysfunction, which we both have, Um, you're always at risk of that. And that risk becomes closer to the surface. Mm. So so the the ability to to push to the limit becomes less and less possible because you're at risk of the problems that we both have had. So yes, I mean, learning to be more moderate in our approach to our sports is something that we're both going to have to negotiate. Um, For me... The what's the answer? I I at the moment I don't know. It's really hard. Um, I I'm in a bit of a quandary because I have um, I I've been invited to take part in a big race, which is really really hard to get into. Um, I really want to try and do it, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the training um, in a healthy way, and mm. I need to try and figure out. Pretty soon, actually, because I need to make a decision whether I think I can train for this, for this race in a healthy way and how and what that's going to look like. And I've reached out for some guidance from coaches and I think I might be in a place where I can figure this out. Uh, but it's going to be interesting. And I think one of the biggest steps for me is going to be taking a step away from social media. Not, not myself myself so much but to stop looking at other people other athletes on social media because i know that that's a big issue where i just get that horrible feeling of inadequacy and missing out and well x was able to do this why can't i and y is able to do this race and run every week and race all these amazing races why can't my body do that anymore? And I've just got to step away from that. So I think yeah. that's going to be a big thing for me or just change who I'm seeing on social media a little bit. Mm. So I'm seeing different different types of people, not just the trail runners and the mountain runners and um, the races and all of that, maybe looking at more strength athletes, maybe looking at more climbers, maybe, mm. you know looking at people who aren't involved in sport at all and trying to just be a bit more diverse in my interests. Um, I think that's going to be really important for me as a, as a first step. And and even just having this conversation with you is, is really important for me because I've not talked a huge amount about my own struggles around the exercise side of things. Talked quite a bit about the food um, and that been interesting having this conversation because it's forced me to be a bit more honest um, okay and Mm. to see that I'm probably still not there and there is somewhere I probably need to go
0: yeah and I think I mean again this is my experience but when I stopped climbing you know I, I guess I was similar to you in some ways I think exercise was a huge part of what put me into this kind of chronic deficit And there was a compulsive element to it that I almost didn't realize until I had gone too far. And the idea of stopping climbing and stopping running was hard for me because I love those things, but it was also scary for me because I think they were a huge part, and I realize this now, of my, my coping mechanisms and my kind of identity. And so to stop doing them made me feel quite lost. But in a way, even though the, the, that's had its down moments that obviously aren't that pleasant to go through, it's been hugely liberating. You know, I haven't climbed or run now. or have done any exercise other than some very light yoga and walking for about six weeks and the world hasn't ended, right? <laughs> <laughs> my body has changed, sure. But I'm sure it will also get strong again when I start giving it a stimulus in a healthy way with enough fuel. You know, that, that also will, um, you know, this is a transition and there will be future transitions. And my friends still like me. <laughs> the world still <laughs> goes round. My boyfriend still loves me. You know, everything, nothing's really changed. I am still me. And it's been really refreshing to find me under all that stuff. And to find out that she's not that different and that, you know, I can then move forward in a way, I think, more easily in the future to put my health first. Because it's almost like you've got to shed a load of stuff. At least for me, I had to shed a load of stuff in order to go, Okay, now I need to start from here. And these are my priorities moving forward. And whatever else comes from that will come from that really kind of stronger base position. That's really good to hear,
1: and it sounds like you've put yourself into a fantastic position for, for recovery into the,
0: in the future. I'm really, really pleased for you. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's not. It's definitely not not kind of um, perfect, and it's it's not been easy. And I'm still not even sure if it's the right thing to do. But you just got to keep throwing things and see what sticks.
1: No, absolutely, and actually, getting into that mindset of it has to be perfect, it has to be right—that's that's the damaging mindset. Come back again, isn't it? Um, yeah, there's nothing. There's no such thing as perfect, and there's no such thing as right. And actually, that's something that annoys me about some of the sort of online uh help kind of groups and things that exist. There's a lot of dogma around what you should do and what you shouldn't do, and actually, nobody really knows what's right for anyone mm-hmm. else, and we've all got to respect what recovery looks like for each one of us in our own individual circumstances. And if my recovery is as it is very nonlinear at the moment, and I'm still wavering around how my training should look like and what I, what I'm doing, then that's, that's my recovery. And yeah. those are the choices that I've made. Um, and I've got to own them, but I don't like kind of some of the the dogma which comes out where you say you must eat x number of calories and you must not exercise you must do this type of exercise or not do that type of exercise that's that's not helpful either because one of the reasons why we got into these positions is because we've been prone to very black and white thinking
0: yeah we've got to embrace the gray areas oh absolutely there's got to be room for nuance and there has got to be room for personal experience and it's it's different for everyone. The psychological differences are, are are really important, and I think dictate a lot of what recovery looks like for for different people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Before we end the conversation, because I'm conscious we've been talking for a while, because it's it's. Really interesting to, to talk to you. Um, but I wanted to touch on some of the support networks that you've started since your experience with Red because that's really how we, I guess, first connected. Mm. Is that you've started a Red S Recovery podcast and you've also started a Red S Recovery Facebook group where athletes can I mean, well, I'll let you say what they are. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. So I've got a podcast which is really dedicated to Red S. It's called the Red S Recovery Podcast. Um I'm kind of doing like a monthly episode sometimes more frequently um and i've spoken to a variety of different athletes um including you um Mm -hmm. i've had another climber on um a man called duncan who was really interesting i've spoken with a mma fighter um i've spoken with a bodybuilder A couple of runners as well. So it's really diverse. And I've I've done that deliberately because I didn't want it to be just about endurance sports um, and just about sort of one particular aspect. I really wanted to look more broadly um, at Red S and how it affects different types of people, men and women. Um, So that's been really interesting. I've got an upcoming episode, which I'm recording soon, with an elite runner, um, which I think will be fascinating because she'll be coming from a, you know, she, she's a, she's a really like a true elite runner, um, coming from a very high level with a lot of coaching experience behind her. And so that'll be fascinating to see Mm. what her experiences have been like. Um, and then I've, I've got a, an episode with which I've been saving up to release because it's a cracker um, with a coach um, a man who's had decades of experience in coaching runners in particular and was a, a world-class runner himself and he talks about his experience in coaching and how other coaches have made the issue worse and how the pieces can be picked up and athletes can be helped so that's really I think, fascinating. And that's that's sort of how I'm going to finish the the series that I've done. And then my plan is to pick up the series again, once I've had a little bit of a break from it, um, and to look at it from a more medical perspective. So I've got a few interviews uh, um, arranged with um, some of the practitioners who I've worked with. Um, Obviously, we're not going to be talking about um, anything personal, but more generally about how they approach working with people through the the process of diagnosis and recovery and what they've seen over the relatively short amount of time that RED-S has existed as a concept. I mean, we have to remember that the position paper um, was only written in 2014. Mm. So it's not been around for very long as a concept. So the doctors are, you know, these are medical professionals who have to work from position of evidence and the evidence is, is not great. So they're struggling as well, and I know from the conversations I've had that they do find it quite difficult because the studies haven't been fully. The studies are there, but they're not. Some of them aren't brilliant, and they're not very widely done, or they're done on very small population groups. So that's quite interesting. And the other approach I've been taking is to talk with um, a personal trainer who works very much with what we call kind of Gen Pop. people in just wanting to get fit in the gym and how she's seen this become a huge problem in commercial Mm. gyms which is and it's not being addressed and thinking about ways in which we can really really improve awareness um around people who don't consider themselves to be athletes who would never even cross their mind to you know listen to a podcast like like ours but who are very very much at risk of this through either bad advice from trainers or just the whole eat more move less propaganda that they've absorbed and taken to into a bad way um so yeah that that's kind of down the line in the new yeah. year um and the other thing that i've got is i do have a um a Facebook group, Facebook group. um So anyone who listens to this who'd like to join the Facebook group, please do. Um, I think it's been it's an it's a really supportive group. I hope you agree. I think it's yeah amazingly really, yeah. really, really supportive. Unlike yes. a lot of Facebook groups, it's actually I don't think there's been anything negative in it ever Mm-mm. actually, which is quite amazing. <laughs> um, and people have been. I mean, I've found it hugely useful just to have the knowledge that there's there are people out there who are listening and chiming in with their own experiences um that's been incredibly supportive and then i'm kind of toying with the idea maybe in the um in the summer um of maybe putting together like a retreat um in the french pyrenees where a friend of mine has a property which which i know we can use um in the hope that maybe we could get together and Um, We could have maybe a yoga instructor and some nutrition talks and be out in the mountains and just share our experiences um, in a more kind of one to one personal way. But that's all down the line. And um, if people are vaguely interested in what we might come up with, um, if they're on the Facebook group, they'll they'll be able to keep track of, of any ideas that come
0: out. Okay. And I'll link to your podcast and your Facebook group, as well as yeah. that Swedish study, actually, that we referenced earlier. Yes, yeah. Um, just so that yeah. if people have listened to this and they want a bit of a deeper dive on that stuff or to, to go and check out your podcast, um, yeah. then they can do.
1: Yeah. And also, cool. I think it might be worth doing a link. So I did a podcast with um, Chris Sandel on Real Health Radio. Yes. Um, back in August, he released it. And that is... It's a a deep dive into the kind of science behind Red S and it might be worth a link to that just because it gives a bit more kind of context to the way it's thought about from a, a more kind of scientific perspective
0: yeah absolutely that was actually where i, f- I first heard your voice was on that podcast um yeah i'll link to that and also i think hazel and i who are running this curious Climate podcast together we have a plan to have a, a podcast between the two of us so we are going to do a have a conversation about red s and do a bit of a deeper dive um into a bit of the science into a bit of the kind of you know, looking at the consensus statement paper from the IOC and all that kind of stuff. And what we'll probably do is post that one before we I post this conversation that we've had, Charlotte, so that oh, okay. there's a bit of context leading into it. But you're right, the 7Health one is also great. So I'll put a link to that too.
1: Cool. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you.